reforms will address the challenges posed by repeat violent offenders, as well as offenses committed involving the use of firearms and other weapons, such as knives and bear spray. All right, that is Federal Justice Minister David Lametti. We will be speaking with him coming up in about an hour or so about these proposed reforms to bail and the criminal justice system. We know that Premier David Eby and counterparts across the country have been targeting bail reform as a way of dealing with public safety issues. They've repeatedly said they needed the federal government to act on some of those measures. And it does sound like from that that they have made some progress on that, moving forward on these targeted reforms things that would impact issues associated with repeat violent offenders and those who face firearms or other weapons charges. So now we're waiting to find out what those potential changes actually mean or what kind of an impact they could have. So we thought, let's talk to somebody who knows all about the system and how it works. Tony Paisana is joining us now, a partner and criminal lawyer at Peck and Company. Tony, thanks for being here. Good morning. What have you thought about this whole debate that's going back and forth about bail reform? Well, I have a couple thoughts about it. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind whenever this discussion comes up is people generally conceive as the criminal justice system as, as some um, uh, solve-all problem solver for uh, our society's ills. And the reality is is that when people get, interact with the criminal justice system, we are really the, the last resort system to deal with them. Um, the, many of the problems that result in repeat chronic offending are ones that uh, come from poverty, uh, mental health uh, addiction, and things that the criminal justice system really isn't well equipped to deal with. And so uh, treating the criminal justice system as a, a problem solver in this area is problematic to start with. And, and we should really start be thinking about these problems a bit more globally than focusing just on the end result that you see when people come into our system. Right. So what about the challenge here, though? When you're talking about people who are repeat offenders, and obviously there's a lot of frustration in the public with that, like, what do you think should be done? Well, one of the things that I think gets lost in the discussion is that the criminal code, which, of course, dictates the parameters around which bail is granted, has a number of tools already available to it uh, to deal with people who are repeat offenders. And indeed, the second uh, uh, way in which uh, people can be denied bail is if they pose a substantial likelihood of reoffending. So if a prosecutor can actually point to a systemic or continued pattern of violent offending while in the community, one can be denied bail for that specific reason. So there's a bit of disconnect between the public discourse and what is actually in the criminal code because there is that tool available to them. Right, but are the tools being used? Well, in terms of uh, perception of how the tools are being used, uh, it really depends on who you talk to. Um, People that we see and talk to in the system uh, feel very much the effect of these tools. Indeed, uh, one of the reasons why the Supreme Court of Canada has so strenuously objected to the overuse of detention is because people are being over-incarcerated, believe it or not, and the statistics bear that out. And indeed, the people who are being over-incarcerated are from marginalized communities, Black and Indigenous are the highest rates of over-representation in the criminal justice system, and in many cases in the bail detention context especially. Right. But the way you mentioned it earlier when you said that, you know, this is supposed to be the last resort for people... If they're not getting any of that other assistance and then they show up there and then, you know, they're given a break because this is the, you know, what what we're supposed to do, but they're not getting any help, though. So we're just going to see them again. So doesn't that just make it a revolving door? Well, this is where I think the reform is necessary. It's one about dedication of resources. And it is something that the province has some control over, which is 
what kind of resources are you going to give to this individual if you're going to release them back out on bail? Are you going to set them up with the mental health and addiction services that may assist them while they're out in the community awaiting their trial? Are you going to uh, intervene into those other issues that I mentioned a moment ago to ensure that that revolving door stops once and for all? And until we dedicate ourselves to that more global approach, as I've mentioned, I think we're going to continue to see this problem with a smaller set of chronic offenders because we are banging our head against the wall, believing that we need to treat them like we need to treat everyone else, when the reality is is they need a special approach. And I accept that part of the equation, but a reform to the criminal code to make it more difficult for everyone to get bail or a, a wider set of, or, uh, of individuals who do not fit the chronic profile um, is not um, uh, an advisable way forward, in my view. So is the onus then, Tony, on the court to say to that repeat offender, what are you, do you want help? How can we get you help? Like, what do you need to not do this again? So the way bail hearings work is that an individual who has uh, breached a bail order, for example, so that's usually the context that someone finds themselves in if they're a repeat offender, the onus is on them to actually demonstrate why they should be released. Um, That's one of these reverse onuses that you talk about. So when you breach a bail, you're on a reverse onus, and you do have to tell the court why it is. Your release is justified, and one of the things you need to address is why you're not going to offend again. And that often involves lawyers on behalf of accused persons saying, I've got a bed set up at this rehabilitation center or or what have you. But this is the problem is you have defense lawyers running around doing the work of social workers uh, when, in fact, it should be the other way around. That the government should have certain services in place to uh, treat and address these chronic offenders at the front end instead of relying on individual uh, lawyers or unrepresented accused to try to find these resources in the community. It's just not an efficient process. Uh, and that doesn't seem like that's going to happen, does it? Well, we have seen progress in some areas. You know, if you go down to, to Main Street and, and you have a bail hearing, there are mental health workers that can assist. There are Indigenous liaison officers who can assist with uh, various uh, placements that are culturally appropriate. There are attempts and have been attempts, some of which are very successful, to integrate these social services into the court system. And I think where we should be looking to dedicate our time and resources is to have further integration of those resources so that when an individual like this comes into the court system, they are diverted into the kinds of programs and resources that could really help them to avoid coming back in the future. Right. So it sounds like there is a deal, though, that there will be some changes for people who, you know, use a weapon or there are charges involving a weapon and there were previous charges involving a weapon. Do you think that's an improvement? Um, In terms of um, this problem of reintegrating individuals with the proper resources, no, I don't think it's going to really solve much, if anything at all. What it will address is a very narrow subset of offenders who have a a persistent (laughs) knack for violent offending with weapons. But like I said before, to be frank with you, uh, in the clients that I represent before the courts, if you violently reoffend with a weapon, you are at an extreme risk of detention. And judges and prosecutors, I think, understand the public risk that are posed by those individuals. And I don't think they're being routinely released in the community. And the public perception, based on a number of recent events uh, that have been highly publicized, tends to skew that perception to think that that's a much more widespread problem than it is. And in my respectful view, it just isn't. Well, Tony, thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. No problem. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.